a psalm of David. The earth is Adonai's and the fullness thereof. Or you could read it, the earth is Adonai's and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Adonai? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, or who does not lift up his soul to an idol, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Adonai and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the God, the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Adonai, strong and mighty. Adonai, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Adonai of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. The the thing I find refreshing about the news today is that it exemplifies the fact that there is good news, and we have it. Isn't that... I mean... When I look at the news, what it's telling... The thing I love about news right now is that the only thing it tells me is that there's no good news outside of the gospel. So, yay for that. What I love about American politics is that it shows me precisely how puny and pathetic the power of man is. And how much energy, how much anger, how much division, how much angst, we are, and how much money the millions that are raised for these puny people to rule for four years, it shows me how pathetic and puny all of this is in light of the kingship of Christ. I look at this and I say, huh. <laughs> I mean, the president really doesn't have all that much power. He isn't a king after all. And yet, how much we invest in it. And yet, what a pathetic imitation of the true good shepherd we have. Or of the true king of glory. That's what I find refreshing right now about the news and about American politics. Is it is showing me more precisely and more clearly than ever before just how good the news we hold, believe, declare, and share, and gather to hear every single week is. And how much we need it. 
We need this good news, and we need to hear it over and over and over, because six out of seven days, we are hearing, and all the hours leading up to this moment, you are hearing bad news, chaotic news, false news, manipulating news, slanted news, personal news that's aimed for selfish gain, news that's given so that advertisers can give the news corporations money. I mean, if we think about it, are we crazy? That we don't spend more time in the good news. Well, next time you watch, I'm not saying don't watch the news, please. I'm not saying don't. You're an American. You, your duty is a citizen. But, 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 the next time you turn on the news, maybe we should pray. Maybe we should remind ourselves of what the good news is so that we can see the temporary news that changes every day anyways. Just see how unchanging, how eternal, how valuable, how precious the news, the gospel of the ascended Son of God is to our souls and to this world. So I just want to start with that. I'm finding all this incredibly refreshing. You couldn't make it, you couldn't find it incredibly frustrating, incredibly depressing, and incredibly dark. Or you can say, but it's such a great contrast to what I have been called and summoned into. All right, well, all that to say this, we are given the good news in this psalm. In fact, we've been given the good news in these psalms. I want to tell you something that Martin Luther said, and that this is just so good, it has to be heard, and I think it applies so relevantly to the last few psalms we've seen the last couple weeks. He said this, Of course, you know Martin Luther, the great reformer. The Psalter, that's the whole collection of Psalms, the Psalter ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom that it might be called... A little Bible. It, it pictures, he says, the death and resurrection of Christ and all of his people, the church, the kingdom. It pictures it so clearly it might be called a little Bible. So he, he goes on. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. It is really a fine handbook. In fact, I have a notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the, tr- to take the trouble. Hmm. I think I miss... Anyways, I'll, okay. In fact, I have a notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take, to, t- to trouble himself, to compile a short Bible and book of examples of all Christendom for all saints, so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would have here... Anyway, the Psalms, almost an entire summary of it, comprised in one little book. That's, that's the Psalms. Everything is in the Psalms. And then you realize, as, as I have been realizing as we go through the Psalms, as I'm reading the New Testament, I'm like, wait a minute, that's in the Psalms. Wait a minute, that's in the Psalms. And on our Wednesday night prayer group, uh, the ones that were at the prayer group, you, you know, you remember this, that when we were reading through the chapter this week, um, we were 
taken aback by how many references to the Psalms Paul uses just in the book of Romans. It was astonishing. The whole Bible. So, look at this. So we're in chapter 24. It's the end of a collection of books. It's their book. Chapter 24 and 15 are the collection. Their book ends. I want you to look at chapter 15 in case we've forgotten. It's been a while. Look at verse 15. Or chapter 15, verse 1. It says, O Haronai, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then this list. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. And it goes on. Who does not slander with his tongue? It gives us this list of who can come up the hill of God. Chapter 24. Look at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of Adonai? And who shall stand in his holy place? And now there's a list. This one's shorter. He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false or to an idol, does not swear false, does not swear deceitfully. So you can see, right, that 15 and 24 are similar psalms. They're different, though, because 24 is taken to a higher level. 15 and 24 are a collection, and they mirror each other from the bookends mirroring each other to the chapters within those bookends, each mirroring each other till you get to the center, which is Psalm 19. And that's the one where we saw the heavens declare the glory of God. So creation was the first Bible, a general Bible. It said there is a God. And then it went on to declare that the scriptures are sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And then we saw that the scriptures are the second Bible. They're the specific Bible. That don't just say there's a God. They say the God's name is Adonai, or Hebrew Yahweh. I am that I am, the God of Israel, the God of the burning bush, the eternal God, the creator God, the God of, and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That God the scriptures show us. And then we also reflected on the fact that Jesus himself becomes the word made flesh. He has come down the hill so that we're not going up to live with. He's coming down to us. He's sojourning. His tent is with us. And he becomes the most perfect Bible, if you will, the most perfect revelation of God. That's the center of these books of the Psalms we're hearing, 15 to 24. And then we go back to the warrior God. Uh, then you go to chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was what Jesus cried out on the cross. This was a psalm of his, this was his prayer on the cross. Psalm 22. He prayed Psalm 22 on the cross. Psalm 23, last week. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What happens in Psalm 23? You may remember, it begins as sheep grazing in this pasture. He then takes them through the valley, from, from pasture up here to valley of the shadow of death. Then on the other side, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. The Psalms take us from hill to hill. They take us from Psalm 15 to Psalm 24. Our good shepherd takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, like Psalm 22. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And back up to this hill in Psalm 24. 
So we see uh, the suffering Savior in chapter 22. We see the shepherd who went into death and came out of death, resurrected on our behalf to lead us into life in Psalm 23. And now in Psalm 24, we see the king of glory. Twice it's asked, who is this king of glory? It's verse 8 and verse 10. Who is this king of glory? Christian, our answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the victorious king of glory. We saw him ride up to Jerusalem, right through the gates to the shouts of Hosanna. Yes. And Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 James in chapter 2, verse 1, both of them refer to Christ as the Lord of glory. Christ, Jesus Christ, is our victorious King of glory. That's what we see in this psalm. And fittingly so, in chapter 22, he dies for our sins. In chapter 23, he is raised as our good shepherd to lead us into the abundant good life of his pastures. And in Psalm 24, he is ascended at the right hand of God as the king of glory. This is why the New Testament letters, after the life of Jesus, Paul's primary terminology for Jesus is Lord and Christ. Therefore, Paul says in Philippians, nope, yep, Philippians chapter 2, therefore he has given him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What was the first message of the early church? After Jesus ascends to heaven, The book of Acts opens with his ascension, right? This is the end of the Jesus on earth story. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And what happens after that? The Holy Spirit comes down and fills us. It was the evidence, the sign of his kingship. Yes, I'm on the throne. And as proof, I'm opening the treasuries of my kingdom. Rather than taxing my kingdom and my citizenship to make me rich, I am opening the treasury of the kingdom, and I'm going to make my people rich with my presence. So he gives us his Holy Spirit as evidence. And so what does Peter say on the day the Holy Spirit fills the followers? He stands up in front of all the questioners, Say, what is going on? Peter says, the Holy Spirit descended, and then he ends, he ends, he ends his message in Acts chapter 2 with, all of this happened to show us that Jesus, uh, we should probably just get the actual words here. Um, Here we go. Uh, He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and, And Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. This is the language. Once Jesus is ascended, Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus. He talks about Jesus Christ and often says the Lord. Why? Because these are titles of royalty. Christ is the Greek equivalent 
to the Hebrew word Messiah, which we've seen in the Psalms. Messiah is what you called Israel's kings. They were the anointed leaders of Israel. Messiah, Jesus, son of David, was called the Messiah. He was the Christ because like all the other messiahs of Israel, he is the king that the Israelites were waiting for. That's why they use the word Christ. He is the Davidic king and Lord because there is no other name above him. This is how, right after the Jesus story, our New Testament begins to speak about him. He is the king of glory. There's no questioning who's the king. So let's, let's look at this, ver- or this chapter and let's ask ourselves, what in the world is going on in this chapter? I don't know if you were wondering the same thing. It starts with saying, verse 1 and 2, the earth is Adonai's and everything in it. Cool. Okay, we got that. Then verse 3, all of a sudden, it's like, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? All right, so someone who's got clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false, by the way, the New King James says idle. The word idle is not actually in the Hebrew. It's, it just refers to emptiness. Who, who does not lift up his soul to what is empty? You can obviously see the point in the New King James that idols are empty. But the word is not actually idle. Um, so we see that, that that person will be blessed. And then there's a third and totally different section. So everything's God's. And then who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The righteous person. And then verse 7 through 10. All of a sudden, we're talking to gates and doors. <laughs> Lift up your head. Lift up my head. Why are you talking to a gate? That the king of glory may come in. All right. Maybe you can see a pattern here. That the question, who shall ascend the hill of Adonai, is subtly answered in verses 7 to 10. Someone has ascended the hill. And someone's knocking at the gates of Jerusalem. Or perhaps the gates of the temple. It's not specific. It's just the gates. Someone has gone up and they're knocking. Now what's believed here is either that David wrote this psalm when he carried the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You might remember David made his home base in Jerusalem. He conquered the city. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place where God's glory, his kavod, his glory, the weightiness of his presence was manifested and rested. He wanted to bring that Ark, which was God's throne on earth. It was his footstool, the Bible calls it. He wanted to bring that into Jerusalem. David couldn't build the temple, but he wanted to at least get everything ready. And so, This is one of the psalms. They're bringing it up, and perhaps there was this whole uh, charade that was played as the ark was brought up. They say, the people, the priests carrying the ark say, lift up your heads, O gates! In other words, wake up! The king of glory is coming! Open up and welcome him in! And then, the people inside the city would ask, who is this king of glory? And now some detail. The detail is, he's Adonai, strong, and mighty, Adonai mighty in battle. And then again, lift up. And then who is this king of glory? And then it's Adonai. So it's this, this call and response, perhaps. Um, another idea is that this was a psalm that the Israelites used any time that they took the Ark of the Covenant out into battle. You might remember in First Samuel, in the early chapters, when Israel went to battle against the Philistines, they brought out the Ark of the Covenant because they wanted God to fight with them. Do you remember that? Of course, it was captured in that story. Um, it's believed that Israel would sometimes bring the Ark 
into battle with them. And so here you can imagine it. The king leads the armies with the Ark of the Covenant leading them down out of Jerusalem and into the valley of battle. And there, upon victory, they would bring the Ark up back to Jerusalem. The return of the Ark would be cause of celebration because it means Adonai has won the battle for us. And so upon bringing the ark up, this was part of the celebration service, is this call and response. Open up! This is, lifting your heads was considered a, don't be downcast, but lift up your head in joy! This is a moment to celebrate, because God has returned! He's returned victorious! And so there's this whole celebration where the city is just, who is this king? And he is the mighty one in battle! Right? So that part makes sense. And I tend to favor that that would make a lot of sense for this psalm, is that it was a psalm of victory when God gave his people the battle. This is why I say that when we read this, Jesus Christ is now our answer to who is this king of glory. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the victorious king of glory. Because, friends, no longer does the ark descend to us, fight the battle, and ascend back. The word became flesh. He who became our mercy seat, our access to the ark of the covenant, the embodiment of the glory, the kavod, the weightiness of God, Christ came down to the valley and he fought our battle. He fought the highest battle. In fact, we shouldn't, he fought the war. He fought the war of the cosmos and died in the war. So that through his death, he would defeat the enemy of death. The devil has used death as his secret weapon against humanity. It's his dominion. It's his domain. The kingdom of darkness and death. And sin is the path that leads there. And Christ comes, goes to war against the devil, against this kingdom, dies to enter into it. This is a Trojan horse story. Christ offers himself Hey, go ahead, kill me. Give me your best shot. And he wins. So that when Christ is raised from the dead and then ascends to the Father, we have this ark being victorious in battle story. The king of glory has left the heavenly Jerusalem. He has fought the battle. He has been victorious. He has returned to the heavenly Jerusalem. Open up, ye gates. Interesting power. Now, okay, let's talk about this. Because we also have, um, we have Ephesians chapter 4, which says this. 
Grace was, this is chapter, Ephesians 4, 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The idea that Paul has here is when Christ ascended, he's given gifts, right? This is the total opposite of what most kings do. They receive gifts, but he gives gifts. So therefore, Paul says, and now, surprise, he's quoting a psalm here. It's Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. A host of captives. Now, in verse 9, he gives us some commentary. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? Now, the ESV has here the lower regions, the earth. Or it could also read, or the lower parts of the earth. What does it mean? So in that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay. Uh, of course, there's a lot to say, but we're going to focus there on the... What does he mean by he... If he ascended, that means he also descended. And... Saint, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, he was a 4th century saint. Um, so way back, way, way, way back. 4th century saint, Saint Gregory of Nyssa. His commentary, his sermon actually on Psalm 24, looked at verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, the king of glory may come in. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, the king of glory may come in. And he said, hold on a minute. There's two gates. Maybe the repetition is because Christ did not come to just one gate and say, open up, but he came to two gates and said, open up. And so if indeed, it's, it's, sort, of a, it's sort of a doctrine, I shouldn't say doctrine, but it's, it's a belief that is debated among some Christians. But if Christ indeed descended to Hades or to hell, the place of the dead upon his death, St. Gregory of Nyssa was saying that Psalm 24 is showing us he went to the gates of hell and said, open up! I want the captives. I want them. And Ephesians told us that if he ascended, he also descended. And when he ascended, he led what? A host of captives. They were not Christ's captives. They were death's captives. And Christ is reclaiming the captives, which is why there's language in the Bible of he ransomed us, he redeemed us. We were part of another kingdom, we were enslaved to something, and he came and got us. It's a ransom, a rescue mission. And so Christ comes in his battle as he descends into the war. Why does he die? Because that's the way to the gates of the devil. And there he demands, open up. And then the reply, who are you? I am Adonai. Or his son in this case. And notice, I am mighty in battle. Strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And the gates of hell do not prevail. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said to Peter, look, because you have said that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I say to you, Peter, that on this 
He doesn't say what this is, but on Peter, on his confession, I'm building my church. And the gates of Hades, of hell, it depends on the translation, the place of the, it will not, the place of the dead, the Satan's domain, will not prevail against it. Why? Because the gates have been kicked in. The gates are broken. The hinges have been rusted off. Christ, the King of glory, has entered and he's made, the good shepherd has made a path out of the valley of the shadow of death, up the hill of the Lord, so that all can come through with the King of glory to his kingdom. This is really good news. Of course, the Bible's a little bit vague on whether or not that's exactly what happened, but there's a lot of church history that teaches that. So you're not in bad company. Then, three days, he's raised by the Father, he's presented to many, and then ascends. And that, Gregory of Nyssa said, that is verses 9 to 10. That the King of glory may come in to our kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. Does the word hosts now seem to be interesting? What's in his wake? What's in his train? All that death once held. Adonai of hosts. I looked at the Hebrew hosts. It just refers to a group. It says sometimes angels, sometimes war, sometimes just a group of people. It was not too specific. Adonai of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, the question, who is this king of glory? This was not a, are you sure you have authorization to enter? (laughs) This is, St. Gregory of Nyssa commented on this and said, this is because heaven did not recognize the incarnate form of the glorious son of God. He became man, joined our two natures, God and humanity together in him, in his incarnation, and he returned in his incarnation. And heaven said, what? Who are you? I am the victorious king of glory? Of course, this has biblical precedent in Revelation, chapter 5. We see God seated on the throne, and everyone's worshiping him there. And then in in Revelation 5, that's Revelation 4, and then Revelation 5, There's the announcement. Hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here. And John said, he's excited. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The king of glory has entered the courts of heaven. And John turns, and what does he see? He does not see this vicious lion with blood dripping from his mouth, with his enemies choked in his jaws. He sees instead a lamb as though it had been slain. You talk about a double take? Wait, you said I was supposed to see... And th- what? The, where's the lion? And of course, this is the idea. Christ, our king of glory, is not the king of glory the same way Caesar or all of his other minions, including all the other Putins and presidents of the world. He is not a king in that form or fashion. He's not the lion mauling heads off. He's the lamb who came to do battle on our behalf. It's a very different king. Jesus said, by the way, to Pilate at his crucifixion, my kingdom is not of this world. And when he says not of this world, he doesn't mean it's somewhere in the stratosphere out there. 
He means it's not like this world. It's not from the way the world does things. You represent Caesar before me. I am not like you. You call me a king, and whatever you think a king is, I am not like that. My kingdom is different. Because if my kingdom was of this world, my people would be fighting to rescue me right now. It's not that kind of a kingdom. And so, this is, this is the ascension, perhaps the descension and ascension, all here foreseen in this psalm. Which now leads us to say two things about this. Um, the reason this is good news, that Jesus Christ is the ascended, the victorious ascended King of glory. The reason this is good news is because we need to know that he is the king now. He's the king now. He is not the king to be. He is not the king elect. He is not the king someday. He is the king now. Do we believe that? We affirm it, we say it, but we have a hard time living it. So often we say things like, but, but God's on the throne. But God's on the throne. So it's, it's like this, I know the coronavirus is crazy. Yet despite that, God's on the throne. It's almost as if we're saying, yeah, I know, there's a lot of things that are out of control, and yet somehow, despite everything out of control, we sort of believe and know we're supposed to believe that God's got it all under control? Is that true? How do we, how do we reconcile that? How do we look at everything going on and say, oh, but, but, but he's in control. He's on the throne. Sometimes we say that perhaps because we need to believe it, but maybe sometimes we also say it because we're like, I'm doubting that right now. I need to affirm it. He is the victorious king of glory right now. But, but, but where? Where is he? Didn't he ascend and went somewhere and he's sitting with the Father and then he'll come back one day and show his kingdom? Aren't we actually waiting for his kingdom? Yes, hold on. I hear you. I hear you. But what we need to understand is that his ascension wasn't his leaving us. It was his entering into the other domain or the other realm or the other dimension the Bible clearly says up, right? It clearly says God is up above, God is in the heavens, Christ went up to be at the right hand of God. Yes, we have all this upward terminology, but it obviously doesn't mean that literally, because when I say Christ is up there, China would be very confused which way I'm pointing at. There? Right, right there at my feet? That's the, there is no up in relation to the earth. Up is... What it refers to is the way all kings, and temples for that matter in ancient days, they were always elevated above the city. They're at the highest point. Up referred to position of power and authority. We don't mean to say when Christ ascended and went up into heaven that he's really up there somewhere. We mean to say that he went to the throne. He's in a position that is above everything else. Not locationally, but authoritatively. Um, so sometimes we can think, okay, well, he's not it, it, later. Like, he, he'll, he'll be king someday. No, 
the Bible makes it very clear he's on the throne now. We just struggle with that because we don't see it. So what I'm saying is, rather than it being somewhere out there, he's reigning on the throne somewhere here. Does not the Bible say, Hebrews 12, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses? What Paul's referring to, if it is Paul who wrote Hebrews, is the saints who have died and are in the presence of Christ. They surround us. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God isn't over there until one day. It's in our midst. We don't have the eyes to see yet. So when Paul in the Bible says that Christ will return, Paul actually does say too, he will appear when he, I think it's First John, when he appears, we will see him as he is. We'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. Right? Remember that? It's First John 3. He appears. What the Bible means when Christ returns is not he's coming back from a long distance. It means the unseen becomes seen. Because the age that is now, the age that is temporary, will be lifted like a veil, and the age to come will be revealed as here before us the whole time. When he returns, it's, the mo- it's not the moment he becomes king. His return is the moment he judges as king. Make that clear. You cannot judge the world for not following a king who's not a king yet. He is king now. When he appears, he judges the world because it has not followed the king. His return is judgment. It is not his crowning. Christ is the ascended king of glory now. He's Lord now, today, right here, in our presence, in our midst, not Jesus, president-elect. This is weird three-month kind of who's who right now. This is him now. There's no dispute. There's no question. No one else busted open the doors of Hades and came to the, the doors of the throne of God. It's very simple. He, and this was the message of the early church, he is Lord. And no one except through the Holy Spirit can say, Jesus is Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 12. All right, so he's, uh, he's Lord now, but I also want us to see that he's Lord everywhere. He's Lord everywhere. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 24. I think this is how, this is how I think Psalm one, uh, verse 1 and 2 fits into this strange collection of three sections. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, or Adonai's, and the fullness thereof, or everything that fills it. The world and those who dwell therein. So what belongs to this king of glory? The earth and everything that fills it. That includes William MacDonald under his own admission. And I'm glad to hear that. Um, Everywhere. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we can think that the king of glory reigns just over his people, the church. It's not true. Everything is the Lord's. Now, it says, this is a nice play on words here. Everything is the Lord's and, and, and all that fills it. Um, I'm going to go back to, he, to Ephesians again. And if you're like, oh man, I left that. Uh, it's okay, you can just listen. Um, but there are two specific sections in Ephesians that refer to the ascension of Christ and this very interesting concept that goes with it. So first is Ephesians chapter 1. 
And this is a great prayer. I often pray this in our services. You may have noticed. Um, it's the prayer where Paul says, um, we ask the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father glory, that he would grant to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him, that he would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know the hope of the calling to which he's called us, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and then this third part, and it's a lot longer, I just pray it shorter. It says, and I hope that you would know, third, this is verse 19, Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Wow. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards who we believe? We need to know this. What, is, what kind of power is this? Then Paul elaborates. It's the power that, according to the working of God's great might, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the power he's talking about that's in our midst. The power that raised Christ from the dead and... On top of that, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Coronavirus, Trump, Biden, Russia, China, America, you go on the list. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Okay, very clearly, that's the ascension, right? He's talking about Christ's kingly position. He's the king of glory. Now verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. How much? No, 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 no. He said only the places where the Republican Party reigns. Oh, no, no, he didn't say that. Or only where the, only where the uh, Protestant church is. No, he didn't say that. He said he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, what? Fills all in all. The victorious ascended king of glory is not just king over a certain section, but he's actually infiltrating through his people. He's infiltrating all. He's trying to fill all in all. Okay, so then also, Ephesians chapter 4. This, we, I already read this to you. I just want to point out because I didn't take the time to point it out then. But so, Ephesians 4 verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So, 1 Corinthians 15 um, there Paul says that he's given, the Father has given to the Son everything. Everything is his. Until death is defeated. Which means, death's already defeated, but until this age is done. This age is done. That's what he's saying. Then it will go back to the Father. Um, uh, where was I? Uh, ah, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we pray this very, I've gotten into the habit every time I read scripture to pray this. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And, because now he's the ascended, victorious king of glory, he is filling all things. He's filling all things. Brothers and sisters, this is, I believe, what Christ meant when he told Peter that the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church because he gave Peter, he said, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom. 
She's open gates. There's nothing shut off to the victorious king of glory. There's nothing shut off in this creation to him. And he says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Now, of course, forever and ever, I don't know if that's for, of course, but forever and ever, I imagine that meant that hell cannot march in triumph over us. Hell is not going to wipe out the church. But then it dawned on me, gates don't march. Gates don't lead the armies. Gates don't fight battles. Gates keep people out and people in. When Christ says that the gates of Hades shall not... I think we'll get it figured out. (laughs) The worship leader? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Can you imagine if Metallica was playing instead? So we, we should be grateful. Uh, where I? The gates of Hades. Gates don't march. So, uh, oh boy, I lost it. Gates don't march. When he says that the gates of Hades will not prevail, he means that they will never keep us out. We have access. There's nowhere that hell gets to keep the church, his people, Christ. Those gates shall not prevail because Christ has already kicked them in. That's what that means. There's nothing off limits to the ascended victorious king of glory. Also, Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, John is terrified as he gets a vision of the risen Christ, the ascended Christ. He he visits John in a vision and, and John is down like a dead man and Christ touches him with his right hand and says to him, fear not. I said this last week. Jingle, jingle, jingle. I have the gate, the keys to Hades and death. The gates of death, of Hades, of hell, Satan's dominion, it cannot stand against. See that gate? Christ says, go through it. Don't let it intimidate you. Go through it. So he's the king now. He's the king everywhere. All right. Finally, there's this weird bit in the middle of the psalm. Who shall ascend the hill of Adonai? Answer, Christ. He ascended the hill. However, there's a call here. There's a call here. If you want to be part of this kingdom, and part of this king of glory, the king of glory, remember this, this is the Hebrew word, kavod. It refers to substance and weightiness because God is not a hollow God. He's a hallowed God. The best way to think of that is hollow is the opposite of hollow. Saints. Remember, Halloween was originally all Saints Day? Halloween. It's referring to the people on the earth who have substance. Not of ghosts and goblins and witches. It's emptiness. Candy. There's a lot of calories for a little bit of nourishment. Emptiness. But the king of glory, his people, his kingdom, is hallowed be your name. The weight and the substance of it be felt and seen in the world. That's what king of glory means. And so now verses 3 through 6 is who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It's asking who's going to come and partake of this glory, of this weight, of this substance, of the fullness 
Christ is filling the earth with his fullness. Who wants to be partake in that? There's two paths here before us. There's the king of glory in his fullness, or there's the defeated little devil of the dominion of darkness and his emptiness. Now, I don't mean to belittle the devil. There's a real, he can really mislead us, and we need to be aware and on our watch and guard of that. But we know his end is futile. His end is emptiness. His kingdom has an end. And in the meantime, it has nothing to offer. So, there's two paths. That's why this psalm leads us. Verse 3, who shall ascend, who shall stand. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does that mean? Clean hands are doing good stuff. They're building. They're healing. They're bringing substance to the world. They're not taking. They're not ripping. They're not manipulating They're not hurting. Pure heart. It's the same. You know know what we're noticing here? Clean hands, pure heart. In Psalm 15, there's this whole list of things to do. In this psalm now, we have something else. Because Christ is king, it's about who we are. It's about becoming people of substance because the king has given to us his Holy Spirit. Because we have opened our lives Like the call, O gates, lift up your heads. We've lifted up our heads in prayer. We've lifted up our heads in praise. And we said, King of glory, come in. He is making us virtuous. And this is the difference between Christianity and the world. Morality in the world, like, oh yeah, yeah, you just got it's 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 virtue is based upon our works. It's what we do. But in Christianity, virtue is sourced in God. And virtue comes from God. And virtue is something that's grown in us when we are in proximity to God. So as we climb the hill, or as we, as, as we near the throne of the King of glory, his glory is built into us. It's manifested and it's caught. C.S. Lewis calls it good infection. It's not the coronavirus, but it's caught even easy, more easily when you're near Christ. When you don't socially distance with Christ, you catch it. You catch his glory. You catch his virtue. It's built into you, and we are then recovering the likeness of God. And then we become people of substance. We become people of weight. That's the idea. That's, that's how you know you are serving the king of glory rather than the other kings and pretend powers of the world is, are you developing clean hands and a pure heart. Do you lift up your soul to what is false? Hebrew is actually emptiness. Do you lift up your soul to what is empty? So it's the call. It's the call to, hey, brothers and sisters, there's a hill and we get to live on it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your works shine so that people may glorify your Father. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is linked to Psalm 24 by the word hill. Who shall ascend the hill? We're not doomed to live in the valley because Christ is leading the host of captives up the hill. You know you're in the wake. You know you're in the train. You know you're following the king when you see the virtues develop in your life. So, 
We're not going to be living in the valley forever. We'll be living in the hill. The valley of the shadow, the valley of darkness. Uh, Colossians 1.13 says that Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness. That was Satan's realm and has now brought us into the light. Um, Ephesians 2 verses 6 and 10 uh, there, Paul, after praying that we would see the power of Christ's ascension, he then says that he raised us up. Don't miss this, Ephesians 2, 6. Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The hill is ours. Christ pulled us up and he, we are sitting with him. He brought us in the gates with him. That's amazing. They, I'm the king of glory and these, Adonai of hosts, these, these are mine. There, Father, make that seat really long. Because I got a lot of people to sit at your right hand. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Why does Christ care about us like this? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For, and here, here's where we're getting to Psalm 24. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So is Psalm 24 serious when it says, look, clean hands, pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false? Absolutely. Because those who are seated with Christ in his victorious King of Glory throne will begin to have his qualities grow in them. We will do good works, good deeds. Not because we're trying to climb the throne of God, but because we are with Christ. So finally, verse 6, such is the generation, this is Psalm 24, such is the generation of those who seek him. What is, such is the generation of those who seek him? The clean hands, the pure heart, the ones who do not lift up their soul to what is empty, who rather lift up their soul to him who is full in the substance and the kavod and glory of God of all. Those, those, such is the generation of those who seek him. So how do we get this? We seek him. We seek him. We don't work harder. We don't say, I got to produce more works. We seek him and he puts into us his qualities. So that's how you know you are following the king of glory. You know because of what is coming out of your life. If you're following the kings of this world, the kings of this nation, the kings of opinion, the kings of news and all that weird cycle, if you're getting caught up in the little powers, you're going to have little virtue. If you get caught up in the big power, you will have great virtue. And we will, on the hills, shine. And we will declare that Christ is the risen King. And that's what he sent us out to do. Go make disciples of all nations. But what did he say before that? He said, because all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Because of my ascension, I am sending you. The good news isn't just that he came to earth. It isn't just that he died for sin. It isn't just that he raised from the dead. It's that he's also on the throne. These four components are the gospel. And we must be people of good news. By showing it through our virtue, because we look like the reigning king. Not because we look like decent chaps. Okay, so friends, we're about to take communion. Christ has opened the gates. He's filling everything with his fullness. 
with his reign, with his glory. But he has given every human being the chance to opt out. You can cancel yourself from this kingdom. He's given you that choice. And so the last way we can read this psalm is, will you lift up your head? Will you open wide the doors and the gates? Will you let the king of glory reign? I allow him to reign through what I see, through what I hear, and through what I say. These are the gates. And I can tell who's reigning your life by what you see, by what you hear, by what you say. Because that's the king you're letting in. Let us tonight, through prayer, through praise, through drawing near, through the provision of Christ, let us open our gates to him. And so, Father, we pray that your son's glory would enter into your people.